Conversations with people. Um, in, in previous podcasts, you've heard me refer to certain things as hero principles, or somebody is similar to a mythical hero. And it's often the case in meaningful conversations that that all refer to the archetype of the hero. Uh, the tendency to to draw the hero into the dialogue is, for my part, a result of an individual affinity for for hero stories especially those of the underdog type, like the story of that, of a timid person who, if you put them in the right circumstances or in the correct conflict, all of a sudden they exhibit an unexpected strength and they're able to overcome a formidable foe or some type of a trial. Now I can't say that my appreciation for hero stories is unique. Mankind's always enjoyed these types of stories. We passed down stories like this from generation to generation, uh, stories of unique individuals from separate cultures or communities. We even do it today. We're either retelling old stories or we're making up new ones that follow established hero motifs. In the Christian world, the central hero figure is Jesus Christ. Christ being the earthly form taken by a, a God, father, brother type figure. He's a being who, who actually plays many roles to those of us who believe in him. Some of those roles even seem to contradict each other. For example, he's a world creator, but he's also a population destroyer. The flood being an example of that second one. He's authoritarian, but he's also our friend. And he gives us laws. He enforces laws. But he's also our moral advocate when it comes to the law. Strangely, also. He, he makes plagues, but he's a healer. He chastens us, but he's also suffered infinitely for us. He's our eternal judge, but he's also provided an infinite sacrifice himself for those things that were judged upon. His character is one we strive to emulate. Like the children's song states, I'm trying to be like Jesus. In whole, he is complete where we are deficient. There's a scripture that states, it is impossible for a man to be saved in ignorance. Basically implying that we're ignorant and he's not. And a similar idea by another scripture, basically saying that we're naive. That scripture states, the glory of God is intelligence. Meaning all intelligence. And we're not. In short, he is what we hope to someday be like. We're at least more than we are at this moment. He is the, the Christian archetype. His experiences, his knowledge, and spirit, they're all what we hope to replicate in our own lives. 
through the art of symbolism, we've actually taken his acts and we turned them to make them indicators so that we can then recognize people or characters who are like him. Likewise, the appearance of similar acts in our own lives are how we actually confirm that we're individually on the path that he intends for us. Baptism. Sacraments. Prayer. So by that point, the Christ archetype is the model for which all other Christian heroes are based on. That which they're all compared and contrasted to. The prophet Alma actually taught that those who were appointed by God to teach the gospel on earth, that they were chosen because their characteristics of faith were similar to Christ's. In a way that those who heard the gospel taught from those teachers would then be able to identify Christ as their redeemer because of his similarities to their teachers. That scripture is found in Alma chapter 13, and it states, Alma referring to the teachers as priests, and those priests were ordained after the order of his son, in a manner that thereby the people might know in what manner to look forward to his son for redemption. Likewise, we also believe that Christ's journey caused him to experience all that every man, woman, and child would experience. Prophet Ammon stated, My joy is carried away, even unto boasting, in my God, for he has all power, all wisdom, and all understanding. He comprehendeth all things. Alma taught, Christ suffered pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind. Amulek spoke about the nature of Christ's atonement. He stated, according to the great plan of the eternal God, there must be an atonement made, or else all mankind must unavoidably perish. He continues, it is expedient that there should be a great and last sacrifice, but it must be an infinite and eternal sacrifice. To this point, considering that Christ comprehends all things, that he suffered every kind of pain and affliction, that his atonement encompassed the infinite and eternal. Would the experience of Christ's atonement then not be the grand composite of the experiences of all beings? And with that perspective, does that not mean that every man, woman, and child then represent a particle of the total hero? In a sense, they're joint heirs of his knowledge. They're contributors to his wisdom. They're elements of his completeness. Protégés to his perfection. And generally, the more we experience, the more we change, the more we improve, we believe the more we become like him. Which is the ultimate goal, because his Sermon on the Mount advises us to be perfect. But this creates a question. A vague question, no doubt, but an impactful one, nonetheless. Is Christ complete because he experienced all things to perfection? Or are completion and perfection only defined as we understand them because they are Christ's experience? Okay, that is a bit vague. Here's another way of looking at this. Are we, are we emotionally and psychologically attracted to the path of Christ only because it represents the steps that Christ took? Or, are we drawn to the path of Christ because the path itself defines and resonates completeness and perfection to all those who seek to improve themselves? 
that Christ, by his efforts, has been the only one capable of completing such a path, and that for that reason, we follow him. Now, personally, I think there's truth to be had from both viewpoints, especially given the complexity of the subject matter that we're talking about. But for our purposes today, and for future discussions that deal with this hero archetype, we'll focus on the path as a hero maker. Through these episodes, we'll identify common patterns that people of all cultures, histories, and beliefs have identified as core traits associated with a hero figure. Almost as if there's an innate biology of our human race that, regardless of religion or cultural background, that we are psychologically drawn towards storyline motifs associated with the type of individual who is to be looked for to save humanity from peril. And I'm sure this sounds like familiar ideas to many of you. The concept of a human-specific psychological tendency toward an archetypal hero, it's not my brainchild. In this project, I apply it to new principles and to my personal experience, but the concept of the hero archetype originated with Dr. Carl Jung, the Swiss psychologist of the early 20th century. Now, he is the man who coined the phrase hero archetype. He actually coined a lot of phrases. He also coined the phrase collective unconscious. And that's an important phrase for anybody who believes in God, who also appreciates what it means to be conscious or self-aware. As opposed to Sigmund Freud's theory, Jung and Freud were contemporaries. Freud's theory proposed that an individual's unconscious was a storehouse of the individual's repressed desires only. Whereas Jung's collective unconscious proposed that an individual's unconscious was made up of not only the individual repressed memories that Freud talked about, but also it housed a a universal kind of ancestral component as well. Basically, he proposed that the human mind through its evolution developed an imprint of characteristics, what Jung called archetypes, and that those archetypes made themselves manifest then through patterns and similarities in the dreams, in the myths, in the art of all the world's separate cultures. And for myself, I've actually thought about the concept of the hero code theory in gradual sophistication for more than 30 years. And what that means is that many of my religious beliefs, my life challenges, my, my social interactions have all had significant analysis under this filter. In having this unique worldview, accompanied with my own experiences, I've stumbled upon a unique viewpoint of suffering. A viewpoint that, for the purely optimistic, is probably understandably difficult. But it's a viewpoint that has conversely been welcomed by people who have had genuine experience with severe suffering. Those acquainted with this type of agony appreciate this viewpoint because it actually offers a productive understanding of the value of suffering. Now, just a reminder, this idea, completely theoretical. But despite being merely theory, I've personally found it helpful in understanding and learning and discovering new and hidden gospel concepts through applying it in a trial and error manner. And there's actually a term that describes a theory used in this manner. 
That term is heuristic. I'm going to spell that out for you. H-E-U-R-I-S-T-I-C. Heuristic. A heuristic, it's something like a mental shortcut. It's equivalent to following a rule of thumb. Not an irrefutable concept, but when you apply that principle, it seems to make sense of several related problems. Now, Einstein actually referred to some of his own ideas as heuristic, using it as the title for one of his papers. For this specific idea, he had no proof that the quantifying of light was accurate, but in the abstraction of his own mind, quantifying certain properties of light, what we now refer to as photons, that made sense to him. And the photon idea didn't make sense merely as a singular concept, but by quantifying light, it also neatly accounted mathematically for several phenomena that hadn't been explained by the science of the early 20th century. In the end, this heuristic has helped us to produce the laser. Now, I often use the hero code heuristic as a rule of thumb in my own life. Whenever I'm engaged in gospel ideas, whenever I'm studying historical matters, whenever I'm evaluating some social matter or artistic work, or even when I'm studying the sciences, I'm constantly evaluating life through the lens of hero principles. In my church experience, the fact that every culture has its own distinct but similar hero story has been explained by prophecy that was given to the mother and father of mankind, Adam and Eve. That in this situation, by way of a direct conversation with God, the true characteristics of a promised savior were fully disclosed to Adam and Eve. That the concept of a savior hero was not created by man, but by God. And it was just that, a concept, a spiritual principle, that like circumcision or sacrifice, for example, the principle was taught and then was accompanied by physical instructions to make the principle more tangible to mortal beings. Kind of like a tradition. Something we do not because it makes sense, because in current traditions that deal with bunnies and eggs, for example, but because we've been instructed to continue the symbolism. And that this particular tradition, the Savior prophecy, through the corruption of time, through false interpretation, and even intentional manipulation, the traditionally complete concept of the prophesied Savior became cancer-ridden. Basically, that through careless reproduction, the original truth was disseminated over generations into multiple copies of what looked, in part, like the original idea. But in each case, every reproduction took on its own unique kind of mutation. Hence, the result of such corrupt dissemination was that each culture that separated ended up with its own little hero myths and legends that in some way shadowed the original savior prophecy given Adam and Eve. Now, without discarding that idea that Adam and Eve were told about a hero savior, consider the separate but compatible idea that the human species whether by evolution or intelligent design, actually has an innate attraction to stories that utilize the repeatable elements that we see in hero lore. Like, like there's something encoded deep in our DNA, programmed to compel us to enjoy savior-like stories. Kind of a genetic hero code. This hero code would be basically the storytelling equivalent of ice cream. 
So, for example, imagine we were to discover five different isolated groups of people, groups that had no connection whatsoever with each other or the outside world for thousands of years. Now, what are the chances that if if you introduced ice cream to each of the groups, that all the five groups would overall like ice cream? Now, hero myths and legends like ice cream trigger a positive mental reaction in the vast percentage of humans. Maybe not as profound as ice cream, but influential, still the same. Maybe resonate would actually be a better word to describe that effect. Some subtle influence caused by hero principles that then harmonizes with a primal part of our subconscious. We see comparable behavior of affinity in science, in the physics of water, when it's applied to elevation. For example, water, regardless of its location on Earth and its historical connection with other water bodies, it always has an innate desire to move towards a location that's comparatively lower in elevation. Despite the fact that the terrain that individual bodies of water move through is always different, as the path of one river is never the same as any other river, it is true that all bodies of water carry identical traits when it comes to their flow pattern and reference to elevation. A hero, however, isn't so common an occurrence as is flowing water. And so the common traits of heroes, by that we mean individuals who are deliverers from peril, those aren't so easily extracted as, say, the traits of rivers in our brains. However, despite the comparative obscurity, there are without doubt unmistakable themes and patterns in the hero lore of all peoples. Now, because of their obscurity, traits identifiably common between culturally comparative hero stories requires an effort of individual conscious abstraction. You have to think about it. Ponder is probably a better term to describe the effort required. Pondering is, is especially necessary when comparing hero traits as they are interpreted in separate cultures. That through a pondering effort, the thinker, by relating the unique principles they've learned in their own life, through the knowledge they've gained through their study of history, and by inspiration, those ponderers may have their understanding enlightened to the similarities of hero lore. And not just revealed, but revealed in a way that actually amplifies meanings of gospel truths. Christ used this method when he taught in parables. By speaking in parables, he was actually able to communicate deep principles to his disciples while in front of a public audience, without even being concerned for openly casting pearls before swine, so to say. He actually found the method so profound that, according to Matthew's interpretation, the particular information shared had been kept secret since the foundation of the world. Listen to the discussion between Christ and his disciples in Matthew chapter 13, as he expounds on the use of parables. Now, parables are the short form of stories myths, and legends. So we step into the chapter of Matthew 13 just after Christ has shared several parables with a general audience. Then that his disciples actually initiate the above-mentioned conversation. We start out with the classic line of Matthew 13, 
Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. We'll continue. And the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? And he said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away even that he hath. Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they seeing, see not, and hearing, they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is wax gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For verily I say unto you, that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which you see, and have not seen them, and to hear those things which you hear, and have not heard them. Now at this point in the chapter, Matthew records Christ's explanation of several parables that he gave earlier in the chapter. After which, Matthew then adds the following commentary. He actually references Psalm 78, verse 2. All these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable spake he not unto them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Now, Matthew here, he's talking about truths that have been kept secret, and by secret we mean encrypted, buried in code, hidden in plain sight, secret from the foundation of the world, secret from even the righteous and faithful believers of the God of Israel. So that, as it applies to us, even as followers in the latter days, it's very possible that there are things that we believe we understand that are, in actuality, still lost to our common interpretation and not lost for lack of worthiness, but lost for lack of mental flexibility and relatability, just as it was lost to many righteous individuals and even prophets in the days of ancient Israel. Even now, such cryptic messages probably elude most of today's common believers. That makes parables interesting. And parables, in general, they're they're memorable stories of obscured wisdom. The word parable, its etymology, aligns it closely with words like proverbs, with the word comparisons, allegorical stories using symbolism for meaning. Essentially, the cryptic principles of parables, they utilize the same heart that beats life into all of our myths and all of our legends. So. Here's a parable for you. And it's a short one, so listen close or you'll miss it. Why, God? Why? Okay, admittedly, not a very good parable. It's not much of a storyline. There's not any animals or vegetation or 
any objects for metaphor, and in truth, technically not a parable. It is, in fact, just a statement or a question. It is profound, though. Even though it's pretty short, I mean, the question, why God, why, implies far more than the face value of its two-word makeup. Because, why God, why, like saying a long time ago in a kingdom far, far away, or they lived happily ever after, it brings far more to the mind than the singular meaning of the phrase. Except, instead of at the beginning or end of a story, the statement, why God, why, it puts you smack in the middle of the drama, right where everything is rife with chaos. Why God? Why? It's a common phrase, and maybe not in hero lore. I mean, it's, it's nowhere near as recognizable as a long time ago. One doesn't just hear the term, why God, why, and immediately think to themselves, hey, yeah, we're talking about fairy tales and legends. When you hear it, you're probably thinking more of something like personal suffering, tragic death, a natural disaster, or the violence of war. And that's interesting because those, those are all classic plot lines for some of your favorite legends, novels, movies. So, despite not being recognizably specific to storytelling, why God, why? It's a common phrase used in the lives of all God-fearing individuals who experience the trials that stories are then told about. But how is that relevant to the hero? Or a path of the hero? Well, and that's simple. Conflict. A hero can only be crafted through conflict. And so, even though Why God Why is not unmistakably associated with hero stories, it is unmistakably associated with the foundational conflict for people of faith. And that conflict being man versus God. Now, for anyone who's taken an English or a literary class past the third grade, you know There are far more types of conflict than just man versus God. For example, man versus self, man versus man, other ones, man versus nature, man versus the supernatural, Um, man versus technology is another one. But for the person who firmly believes in an all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-present God, Not a single conflict lies out of God's power and ability to manipulate. And what that means is that despite God's respect for the laws of physics, for the character of Mother Nature, and the necessity for us to have our individual choice, there is no event, large or small, that occurs without God's verification that that event doesn't disrupt his plan for us as individuals, as well as his overall plan. Now, to some of you, that idea sounds too heavily weighted with the concept of determinism, predestination. But when you actually think about it, even the content of your prayers says otherwise. And I'll use a scriptural example here. Amulek, a scriptural missionary, recommends to the people that he's teaching that they pray over all of these things. Alma chapter 34. Amulek states, Therefore, 
May God grant unto you, my brethren, that ye may begin to exercise your faith under repentance, that ye begin to call, call upon his holy name, that he would have mercy upon you. There's an example of God versus man. Yea, cry unto him against the power of your enemies. Invoking God for your help with a conflict that has to do with man versus man. Yea, cry unto him against the devil, who is an enemy to all righteousness. Crying to God for help with a conflict that is man versus the supernatural. Cry unto him over the crops of your field. Cry over the flocks of your fields that they may increase. Both of those being man versus nature. But this is not all. Ye must pour out your souls in your closets and your secret places and in your wilderness. Yea, and when you do not cry unto the Lord, let your hearts be full, drawn out in prayer unto him continually for your welfare. Man versus self, and also for the welfare of those who are around you. Man versus man. So after hearing those words of Amulek, identifying that God has influence over all these areas of conflict, consider this. Is there a trial or a conflict that you would not pray to God for help because you believed it was outside of his realm of influence? Of course not. I mean, at least personally, I can't think of one. And what that means to me is that there is no event after which I could then ask God, hey, why did this happen? To which he could not provide a productive answer. Basically, there is no why God that I could ask him to which he could not provide an adequate, well, Todd, because this. For this reason, I pose that why God, why is a representative phrase for conflict for chaos and disorder, for the appearance of all that is unknown to us. Now that's a wrap for part one of this discussion on the hero code. In part two, we'll jump into a discussion on the specifics of the phrase, why God, why, and how it affects suffering as a transmutable concept. Basically meaning that through time, suffering alters itself from that which we most dread to that which we most value.